As we come to the conclusion of our series, I'm All In, today we're going to talk about being all in with service and what does that mean and what's the biblical call. I rarely recommend books to you, but I want to recommend a book to you. It's uh, Max Licato's book, Outlive Your Life. It's a fantastic book that challenges us to really think about uh, how we invest our time for God into the world. It's a wonderful uh, book, and it opens with a fable that is recorded for us by Max. And on this Father's Day Sunday, uh, I want to start by sharing with you the fable of Father Benjamin. And so kind of sit back like Grandpa's reading to you now, right? This is what I did when I was a kid to my grandparents. And, and just listen to a story uh, to start our time together today. The fable of Father Benjamin. Unfavorable winds blow the ship off course. And when they do, the sailors spot uncharted islands. They see a half dozen mounds rising out of the blue South Sea's water. The captain orders the men to drop anchor and to go ashore. The captain is a robust man with a barrel chest, full beard, and curious soul. On the first island, he sees nothing but sadness, underfed children, tribes in conflict. There is no farming, there's no food development, no treatment for the sick, no schools, just needy people. The second and following islands reveal more of the same. The captain sighs at what he sees. This is no life for these people. But what can he do? Then he steps on to the last and the largest island. Here the people are healthy. They're well fed. Irrigation systems nourish their fields and roads connect the villages. The children have bright eyes and strong bodies. The captain asks the chief for an explanation. How has this island moved so far ahead of the others. The chief, who is smaller than the captain, but every bit his equal in confidence, gives a quick response. Father Benjamin, he educated us in everything from agriculture to health. He built schools and clinics. He dug wells. <laughs> the captain asked, can you take me to see him? The chief nods and signals for two tribesmen to join their journey. They guide the captain over a jungle ridge to a simple, expansive medical clinic. It is equipped with clean beds. It's staffed with trained caretakers. They show the captain the shelves of medicine. They introduce him to the staff. The captain, though impressed, sees nothing of Father Benjamin. He repeats his request. I would like to see Father Benjamin. Can you take me to where he lives? The three natives look puzzled. They confer among themselves, and after several minutes, the chief invites. Follow us to the other side of the island. They walk along the shoreline until they reach a series of fish ponds. 
Canals connect the ponds to the ocean. As the tide rises, fish pass from the ocean into the ponds. The islanders then lower canal gates and trap the fish for a harvest. Again, the captain is amazed. He meets fishermen and workers, gatekeepers and net casters. But he sees nothing of Father Benjamin. And he wonders if he's making himself clear. I don't see Father Benjamin. Please take me to where he lives. The trio again talks alone. And after some discussion, the chief offers, let's go up to the mountain. They lead the captain up a steep, narrow path. And after many twists and turns, the path deposits them in front of a grass-roofed chapel. The voice of the chief is soft and earnest. He has taught us about God. He escorts the captain inside. He shows him an altar, a large wooden cross, several rows of benches and a Bible. Is this where Father Benjamin lives? The captain asks. The men nod and smile. May I talk to him, the captain asks. Their faces grow suddenly serious. Oh, that would be impossible. But why, asks the captain. And the chief responded, he died many years ago. The bewildered captain stared at the men. <laughs> I asked to see him, and he showed me a clinic, some fish farms in this chapel, you said nothing of his death, but you didn't ask about his death, the chief explains. You asked to see where Father Benjamin lives, and we showed you where he lives. I love that story because it, it really emphasizes this idea that there are things that can outlive us, that there are tasks we can be a part of, opportunities we can be a part of that could, could endure long past our time on this earth. And I think that the church has a legacy that lasts beyond each generation. The Apostle Paul, who we'll talk about in a fair amount of detail today, said something that I think is quite profound about this experience we have as Christians. He was talking to the Galatians, and the Galatians were kind of worked up about all kinds of things whether they should be circumcised or uncircumcised, or what it meant to really do what God wants. At the very core, they wanted to do what God wanted them to do. That was what they were most about. And they didn't want to leave any detail out. They wanted to make sure they got it exactly right. And so Paul knows that's their heart, and they, they're fighting over it. Like they're, they're, well, you haven't done this, and God wants us to do this. They're arguing about it. So Paul wants to settle the matter. And so we read these words from the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, and it's a purpose statement for Christians. And this is what he said. The only thing that counts, the only thing that counts, or the only thing that matters is this, faith expressing itself through love. That's a, isn't that an interesting purpose statement for the church, for us as Christians? The only thing that matters is our faith 
expressing itself through love. Paul doubled down and he goes on to say in that same chapter, Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, he says, you were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh or don't use your freedom to indulge what you want. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. James, the brother of Jesus, one of the early elders of the church in Jerusalem, also added this in James chapter 1, verse 27. He said, religion that our God, excuse me, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Look after orphans. Look after widows in their distress. And keep yourself from being polluted by the world. These are the calls of the faithful Christians and the leaders of the church. Serve each other in love. Make a difference. Care for orphans. Care for widows. Be salt, be light, be love in the world. But I know what happens. We look around us and the problems are massive. They're overwhelming. I mean, how do we stop the problems of crime and violence and poverty and oppression and abuse, those are massive problems. And each one of us wonders and ponders, how can I possibly do anything that could make a difference against such an enormous problem? There's a phrase I want you to get because I think it's a phrase that captures the heart of the gospel and God's plan. This is the phrase, none of us can do what all of us can do. None of us can do what all of us can do. Well, each of us as individuals, we're limited in our scope and ability to change the world, but together, and I don't just mean together the people of Ogleville Christian Church, but Christians working together around the world can change the world in substantive and powerful ways. And I know it can be done because it's already been done. We've already shared a little bit about this during the series, but the birthday of the church is the day of Pentecost. It was 50 days after the Passover, when Jesus had been killed on the cross, 50 days later is a celebration of something called the Passover, or should we of Pentecost. And as they come to the celebration of Pentecost, <clears throat> Peter preaches a great sermon. And he preaches to the people of Jerusalem, in Jerusalem, the same people who had shouted out, crucify him, crucify him. They've heard the story of Jesus' resurrection. Their hearts are broken because they recognize they were complicit in the death of Jesus. And they're overwhelmed with grief and sadness. And they wonder, is there any hope or any salvation for me? I mean, if I've killed God's son, is there any way that God could ever forgive me for that? That's on their hearts. And when Peter began to preach to them, he says, you, you were the ones that that did this horrible thing to Jesus. And the Bible says that they were terrified and they were cut in their hearts. It's this image that they were overwhelmed with grief and sadness and, and despair about the actions that they had taken. And they cried out to Peter, it says, they said, well, what are we supposed to do? And Peter gave them this grace-filled, hopeful response, right? He said, well, <laughs> repent. Say to God, I'm sorry for what I've done. Be baptized. Go into the water with sin and come out of it with the sins washed away. 
be completely overwhelmed by the grace of Jesus, which forgives us of all unrighteousness. And they did. 3,000 the first day, 5,000 within just a few weeks. Now Luke, who tells us that story and writes about that story in the book of Acts, Luke doesn't stop with the great conversion of the people. But he begins to tell us the story of how they acted after they had accepted Jesus. And today, in just a few minutes as we go through this, I wanted to show you a few passages of what the church looked like after that. What did they do? And what difference did it make? Well, listen to this. It's the first thing it tells us about that day. It's from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 44 and following says this. And I want you to note something. I said, none of us can do what all of us can do. And in all these passages, listen to the plurality of the, of the nouns, of the groups. There's no I or me. It's all we or they. Listen to that and understand that this is what the church did together. Acts 2.44 says this, all of the believers were together. <clears throat> they had everything in common, they. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Two chapters later, we continue to hear the story of the church, and Luke tells us a little more. And in Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 32, we read these words. All the believers were one in heart and mind. <clears throat> no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. They shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all, that, and listen to these words, that there were no needy persons among them. They wiped out poverty in their community. Do you get that? This is a group of motivated Christians, about 5,000 strong at that point, who went all in for Jesus, and they couldn't help but help others. That's what they were doing. And as they were doing that together, they couldn't find anyone else who was in need that needed their help. They had helped everybody they could in their time and in their place. That is a remarkable thing. There were no more needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, and they brought the money from the sales. They put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had needs. I just think it's remarkable how this heart they had for the people was so generous and so serving-focused. It goes on in Acts 6, chapter 6, verse 1, and we read these words again about the church, and listen to how they're living out the command of James, that James had given. Look after the widows and the orphans. Make a difference. And look how it continued to develop itself as they were working out and helping people. In Acts chapter 6, it says this. In those days, that's that same time period, 
when the number of disciples was increasing, there were two different groups of people. The Hellenistic Jews, among them, complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So they had a food ministry feeding the widows and the orphans who needed help. And they fed them every single day. Daily distribution of food. Now the people from one neighborhood said, wait a minute, that's not fair. The people from another neighborhood are getting something better than we are, right? And we can't let them have something better than us. We, we want to have the same, right? They're getting a better, uh, better meals than we are. They're getting something better. And so there was an argument that broke out about, about fair treatment of the people as they were doing this. So the apostles, the 12, gathered all the disciples together, and they said, well, it's not right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God, that is preaching and sharing and teaching. It's not right for us to neglect that ministry in order for us to wait on tables, to be the people who distribute the food every day. So they went before the church, and they said, brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom, and we will turn this responsibility over to them. And we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. And this proposal pleased the whole group. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit. And we'll talk more about Stephen in just a moment. Also Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicholas from Antioch. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. Verse 7 says, so the word of God spread, and now I need you to catch this next phrase because this is amazing. And the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Hear this. The religious leaders of Jerusalem had been enemies of Jesus. Not all of them, but the majority. They were the ones that had put him on trial. They were the ones who made all the accusations against Jesus. That included this group of priests who now are coming to faith. So what had made the difference in these priests? It's the same thing that will make a difference in the world today with people who stand opposed to Jesus. It was seeing faith in action. It was seeing genuine faith expressing itself in love. And that was something that they didn't see anywhere else. They didn't see it anywhere else. And when they saw it in these Christians, they said, there's got to be something real about their faith. It's not just something they say. It's something that they actually do. They're living it out, and it transformed them. Now, I want to be clear about something at this point in our discussion. When we talk about service and we talk about compassion, compassion is not what saves us. We're not saved because we're compassionate on people. We're not saved because we serve other people. That's not what saves us. Jesus is who saves us. But it, I want you to also get this. The natural outflow of salvation is compassion. There's a verse in the Bible that's really fascinating. It says, the person who's forgiven little forgives only a little. The person who is forgiven much forgives much. Well, we are people who have been brought from death to life. 
We had deserved hell and we get heaven. We have been forgiven much. And those who have been forgiven much want to be compassionate. They want to forgive much, not forgive little. But compassion, it just isn't always easy. I know that. I mean, when we talk in big terms about the poor, it's easy for us to think, yeah, we need to do something about that. We talk in specific terms about poverty. We could go to the weekly police blotter chart and we could see what streets people lived on that were involved in this or involved in that. And we get specific. We can actually have some pretty negative feelings towards people because of things that they do. And we can have a kind of judgment that happens naturally, right? We say, well, they're not very good people or nice people. They do horrible things. And we can come to that place. It's a natural response for us today. It was a very natural response for people in this time where all these things were happening. In fact, there's a great illustration of that. It illustrates the point that compassion is not always easy. Remember that guy, Stephen, we talked about a few minutes ago who was chosen to help in the feeding ministry of the widows and the orphans? Well, Stephen has been brought before the religious leaders, just like Jesus had been, for spreading the good news of Jesus and a message that people thought was counter to Judaism and, and counter to the Roman beliefs. And they were afraid that Christianity might cause some trouble for the city of Jerusalem. It was a very tense time. And they brought Stephen and they put him on trial for his words. Stephen's sermon, as he preaches before them, or as he teaches them, or he testifies, if you would, on it during a trial, is powerful. But during it, they turn on him, and they stone him to death. An interesting character shows up at that stoning. There was a person there, a zealot, a man of great knowledge of the traditions of Israel. His name was Saul. And Saul does something very fascinating at the stoning of Stephen. When we just read it in the text, we don't think much, much about it at first. It says they laid their coats on Saul. But if we understand what that really meant, it was that Saul stood up at the stoning of Stephen. And he said to everyone else that was there, all these religious leaders and priests and people that wanted to kill him, he said basically this, this man is guilty and I will, if we kill him and God is upset with us for killing him, all of the guilt for whatever you do, it'll be on me. In the same way that you take off your coat now and go pick up a rock to stone him, you lay whatever guilt is supposed to be on you, you lay it on me and I take it. That's what Saul said. He was saying, I'm to blame for the death of Stephen, not you. You go carry out this, what he called justice and you kill him. That was Saul. When I say that he hated the Christians, I mean he hated them. Now, God has a way of rearranging the paths of our life. And Saul has a face-to-face -face encounter with Jesus that radically transforms him as he's driving along on the road to Damascus. It just happens there's a Christian in Damascus, and we're going to pick up his story. 
The Christian's name is Ananias. He's a faithful man, a follower of Jesus Christ, a, a devoted Christian. And it says in, in Damascus, this is from Acts chapter 9, verse 10, in Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. And one day the Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. And if God calls to you, you should always say, yes, Lord, your servant listens. And, and Ananias says, yes, Lord. And the Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. Ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. When Jesus had encountered Saul, he had stricken him with blindness and Saul couldn't see. Now, Ananias knows about Saul, and so he says in verse 13, Lord, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. In fact, he's come here to Damascus with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. He was a representative of the legal authority. He was coming basically to say, hey, if you're a Christian, I'm rounding you up. You're going to jail. So Ananias is saying, God, you, you can't mean this guy. If I go to him, I mean, I'm going to risk my life to go to him. He wants to kill me. He wants to imprison me. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. Go. This man, Saul, is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, verse 17 is powerful just because of what happens next. Then Ananias went to the house and this is, there had to be this terrifying moment. Ananias knows that if he knocks on this door, it could cost him his life. Saul has the authority, just like he'd killed Stephen, he has the authority to get him killed. And yet Ananias knocks on the door. He's invited in. And he places his hands onto Saul, on his eyes, and he said, Brother Saul, and that's a powerful word, brother. This is the public enemy number one of the church. But because God told him to go, Ananias calls him a brother, not because of anything he's done, but because if God has put his hand on him, he knows he's going to do great things for God someday, some way, somehow. And in faith, Ananias says, brother, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me to you so that you may see again and so that you may be filled with the Holy Spirit. And after he said these words, immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. And we know that his conversion was complete. He says he got up and he was immediately baptized. And after taking some strength, he reg some food, he regained his strength. He spent several days then with the disciples in Damascus. These Christians, they took a risk. Uh, they invested in a dangerous person. 
And the consequence of that changed the world. Saul becomes Paul. He writes half of the New Testament. It's amazing what his letters convey to us of theology and a knowledge of God. It's a remarkable story how he goes from town to town. He's, the, he's a, an evangelist that is, is adamant about taking all kinds of risks to his own life in order to make sure the gospel messages spread everywhere that he can spread it in his time. He does. And even though it will mean he will be hated by the Jews and the Romans, he doesn't stop proclaiming the good news of Jesus. All because the church and one Christian person was faithful. Was faithful. And who knows, friends? Who knows but that your faithfulness may be to teach a Sunday school class or to work at VBS or, or to engage somebody in your workplace. Who knows that God isn't going to use you to be the one who reaches someone who will reach the world? Yeah, one of us can make a difference, but none of us can do what all of us could do if we're all doing our part. But I still sense the reluctance that we feel. Well, I mean, it was easy for the apostles. They had been with Jesus. And it was easy for Ananias. He had heard God's voice directly. And if I heard God's voice directly, I'd go do what he asked me to do, right? We, we think that way. I mean, surely if I heard the voice of God, I'd do it. But I haven't heard God's voice in this. I'm not sure about that. But if I saw Jesus, if I saw Jesus, then I'd go do it. There's a really interesting event that occurred in 2007. At 7.51 in the morning on January the 12th, 2007, a young musician took his position against a wall in a Washington, D.C. metro station. The man wore jeans, a long-sleeved t-shirt, and a Washington Nationals baseball cap. He opened a violin case, removed his instrument, threw a few dollars in, a pocket, in some pocket change into the case, and he began to play. He played for the next 43 minutes. He performed six classical pieces. During that time, 1,097 people passed by him. A few tossed in money to a total of $52.17. Of the 1,097 people, seven, only seven, paused longer than a minute. And you can, of course, watch all of this for yourself on YouTube today. After the seven, one person, only one, recognized who the violinist was. He is still considered the foremost virtuoso and premier violinist in the world, Joshua Bell. Joshua Bell is used to performing with symphonies to standing room only crowds that often pay $1,000 for a ticket to hear him play. And here he was playing for free in the subway and no one even noticed, save one person. It was an incredible thing that day on the subway. Why? 
he hadn't even earned enough money for a cheap pair of shoes. <laughs> Why? Why? Why did that happen? We can't fault the instrument. He played a $3 million Stradivarius violin. <laughs> you can't fault the instrument that he had. Uh, it was first rate, one of the best in the world. And we can't fault him for his talent. He is the world's foremost violinist. Nor could we fault the part that he played. He played some of the most renowned music of Johann Sebastian Bach. He played a piece that many consider the greatest achievement in music of any man in the history of the world. That's what he played. But no one noticed. Why? No one expected to see majesty in the midst of the common. They saw shoe sign stands, kiosk, people buying magazines and hot dogs, and beggars, and the homeless, and the poor. And there in the midst of all of that, a violin master playing music just didn't seem possible. And yet here we are. We're a people who say, I'd serve, I'd go all in. If, if I saw Jesus, if he told me to do it, I, I'd go all in. So where are we going to see Jesus? Jesus told us where we'll find him. He gave his very last parable before he died in Matthew chapter 25. It's the last one. He talks about people who really love him and people who say they love him, but they don't ever do anything that demonstrates that. He calls them the sheep and the goats. You can read all about it in Matthew 25. The crux of that message is Jesus says this. You want to see me? Go spend time with the hungry. I'll be with the hungry. A man he was, remember? He fed 4,000, he fed 5,000, he fed the guys on the beach. Jesus was about feeding the hungry. You want to see Jesus, go spend time with the hungry. You'll, you'll, you'll see him there. Or you want to see Jesus, go spend time with the thirsty. On more than one occasion, he offered people the living water. Remember that lady of bad character we talked about in the sermon series at the well that he offered living water to? You want to find Jesus, find the broken. I mean, the man with the broken hand, the broken back, the beggar who laid next to the pool that prayed someone would toss him in the water when the water stirred, all those things that they were desperately clinging to. Find the broken, you'll find Jesus. Because, man, he was always touching the broken. You want to find Jesus, find the naked. I know that sounds really weird, doesn't it? The naked, the most poor and messed up among us, people who would run around naked, that just seems crazy. But in Jesus' day, there was a person who did exactly that in the town of Gadara, ran around the graveyard naked, cutting himself. Everyone knew he was a madman, filled with demons. He was crazy. And when Jesus went to that madman who needed clothing, Jesus brought a set of clothes with him. And he set him in his right mind, and he clothed him. You want to find Jesus, you want to see Jesus... Go find those people who are just that messed up, and you might find Jesus there. You want to find Jesus, 
Go find the oppressed. Go find the people everyone hates, the Samaritans, the woman caught in adultery, laying in the dirt, while everyone around her points out how terrible she is and holds a rock to kill her. But that's where you'll find Jesus, right beside her in the dirt. Jesus said it this way. The people were like, Lord Jesus, when did we see you? And he said, well, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was a stranger, you invited me in. When I was in prison, you came to visit me. And the people say, well, Lord, when did we see you naked? Or when did we see you hungry? Or when did we see you in prison? And Jesus answered to them as his answer to us. And he said, inasmuch as you've done it to the least of these, my brothers, you've done it to me. You've done it to me. Paul said it, and I'll say it again. The only thing that matters, the only thing that counts, is faith expressing itself in love. Oh, these are perilous times, and the world needs the church today more desperately than ever. And the question before us is, am I willing to take the risks that Ananias took, that Stephen took, and that all of those Christians took to make sure the world knew that there was a Savior in Jesus Christ, that he loved them, that he cared about them. He cared about their physical needs and their spiritual needs. If we will be the light, the salt, the love, of Jesus in the world, what would stop the enemies of Jesus today from being just as changed as the enemies of Jesus were in the first century? And who knows? Is it impossible for God to do again what he did before? Isn't it possible that the God who created the earth could once again empower the church so that there truly were no needy persons among us today. Increase our faith, Lord. Increase our faith. Now, as you hear all those things today in that sermon on being all in, and what a sermon series we've had together to go all in, the call before us is simply this, am I really willing to give my all in every part of my life to God. To trust him with my past, my present, and my future. And to say, Lord, my life is in your hands. Do with it what you will. Lead me where you'll lead me. If there are people that I need to help, like we talked about a few weeks ago, Philip, then let me know who it is so I can go help them. If I have something that someone else needs, then, then let me have a willing heart to let go of what I have and to share it with someone else who needs it worse than I do. Help me to have the eyes of Jesus, the heart of Jesus, the hands of Jesus, the will of Jesus, the mind of Jesus. Help me to love. Help me to live like Jesus. There are others here today who have never yet accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've thought about it, but you haven't done it yet. 
Friends, Jesus changes everything. And I can only say it this way, that without Jesus, your life will never be complete. Never be complete. You will always feel there is something that is missing if Jesus isn't in your heart. He's not in your life. Today you have an opportunity to say yes to Jesus. And I hope you take that opportunity. For others among us, perhaps it's a time for us to repent of some things. Maybe there are things, opportunities missed, moments that we haven't done what we should do. The Bible says if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. When God goes all in, he goes all in. Whatever decision God's laid on your heart, would you be faithful to leading God's spirit as we stand and we sing our hymn of invitation?